Hello, welcome to another episode of the Silk and Steel podcast. I'm your host, Carl Zha. Today we have a very special episode. Um, so I had Mr. T previously on the show on the Tech War series, which uh, you know many of you uh, had found very interesting. Uh, today I'm having Mr. T back on the show, but to talk about something a little bit different, but related. So first of all, welcome to the show, Mr. T. Yeah. Hey. Uh, good to be on the. Good to be on again, uh, Carl. And thanks for thanks for having me. Hope your uh, leg is feeling better. Ah. Uh, yeah. I'm. You know. I'm. If I just lay flat, I don't feel the pain. Uh. But I. I just can't move my joints because. Uh. For people who don't know, I. I was surfing uh, a day ago. I was surfing in Uluwatu, you know, famous big surf spot in Bali. I made the mistake of going there on low tide. You know, before I, you know, Uluwatu has a reputation of being like the surfing spot in Bali, right? And the, but the thing is, it has a lot of coral reefs and it could get pretty dicey on low tide. So just because of the reputation of Uluwatu, I actually stay away from that place for like, first six months I was here and then uh, you know one time it was just bad everywhere else so I went to Uluwatu on high tide and, and it seems okay I have been surfing there you know quite often so I got a little bit too complacent you know I knew the tide was going out but I thought you know you know I, I surfed there many times I'm fine then uh, yeah <laughs> and then I got slammed by a big wave and dragged through the coral reefs and uh, at the time I you know I felt pain but I I just thought this is some you know it's just to be expected when you get slammed into coral reefs you know you you got a few scratches uh, but I was running on so much adrenaline you know I I didn't think too much of it until I got out of the water. I saw people were looking at me funny, and I saw blood rushing, gushing out of my leg, gushing down my leg. And I was thinking, oh my god, I was such a shark bait for like a good half hour, uh, and I didn't even know. Uh, but I, I still didn't look at the room closely because, it, like, there's so much blood. Um, so I went, I, I, you know, I rode my motorbike. I actually walk all the way up the hill. You know, I, I notice when I walk, when I, when I um, step along my knee, it kind of hurts a little bit. It kind of hurts more than normal. And uh, so when I finally got back home, I call, you know, my wife, now, now my wife, Ani, uh, she came back, uh, she tried to clean my wound, and that's when I, she, she took a picture, that's when I saw, you know, there were some, uh, you can see a little bit of my uh, kneecap, <laughs> like, like exposed, and there was a huge chunk of flesh missing from just below my knee. Um, and then my my leg when, when she was wiping my my calf, it feel a little bit numb. So that's where I became concerned. I, I was concerned, you know, some joints or nerve get got severed. Uh, so I went to a doctor, and and you know the doctor said, "Oh, you're fine," and and put in five stitches. So so right now I just. Um, you know, I'm just immobile, can't, can't move, can't move because of stitches. But otherwise, you know, if I don't move, there's no pain. So uh, enough about me. And uh, <laughs> let's, let's get on with the show. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to back uh, Mr. T is 
to uh, uh, is to talk about you know a development that we, we began to talk about last time you know on the bonus segment when you were talking about kind of the increasing um, sinophobia pushing pushed by by this administration and uh, you know impact on Chinese Americans in the United States um, so uh, what I realized is, is that um, you know not many people, are even aware, um, you know, who is driving the China policy in the Trump administration, right? Like, like there, there are reports out there, but you kind of have to dig for them if you know where to look. Uh, but it's not really common knowledge, you know. Even me, I, I think I paid fairly close to attention to China and the China policy coming from um, from U.S. You know, see even. I did not know some of these details. So, uh, Mr. T, you are going to fill us in with your um, <laughs> insider knowledge <laughs> about, you know, the, the going-ons. Um, uh, well, I mean, I, I don't know if insider knowledge, you, 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 pay, you pay closer attention to this more than most people. So, um, do you want to take a stab? I, I, like, one thing you know, about the Trump administration is, you know, when Trump first came to... Uh, power, he, you know, he's he doesn't really have a China policy per se, except maybe, uh, you know, a, a trade war because Trump, you know, what, what does he really know about China? Uh, it feels like the Trump administration's China policy is really driven by people in his administration who work behind the scenes. Um, so maybe can you introduce the characters and talk about that, Mr. T? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think you got to think about like the uh, there. There are four P's who really drive you know Trump uh, Trump's China policy or or represent the hawkish side of it, right? And they're sort of uh, 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 Secretary Pompeo um, and then Mike Pillsbury, uh, Peter Navarro, and then finally Matt Pottinger. Um, Pompeo is the Secretary of State. Uh, Pillsbury is just this floating advisor type. Um, uh, Peter Navarro, I think you guys all know him. He's that death by China sort of trade hawk, you know, also sort of a floating advisor. And then, uh, and then Matt Pottinger, I think, is the least visible of those four. Um, but he's also the most critical one because he's the uh, deputy national security advisor. Um, and Matt, uh, he, uh, I mean, we, I guess we can talk a little bit more about his background later. Um, but you know, what he kind of does in the administration is he he serves as a coordinator, right? So the National Security uh, Advisor, um, the NSA, uh, and the Deputy National Security Advisor sort of, uh, sort of serve a coordinating function under the National Security Council, the NSC. Um, and the National Security Council itself has, you know, maybe a couple hundred to a thousand staff. Um, and, the re- re- and what they basically do is they serve to essentially coordinate uh, you know, the other departments inside the U.S. government to go and achieve national security objectives. Um, and for Matt to assume the role of deputy national security advisor at sort of the relatively tender young age of 45 or 46, that's a, that's kind of an accomplishment in and of itself. And um, now he wasn't always that. When, he, when Trump appointed him into the NSC, he was just the... Uh, nat- he was just the NSC staff, senior NSC staffer in charge of, in charge of China, um, and in charge of Asia actually. Sorry, not China. But uh, but later on he became 
you know, that, that DINSA, so to speak, the DNSA. Now, uh, now Pottinger is a, is a pretty interesting character. Um, you know, in his role there, he's been critical in trying to get all the executive branch departments together on the same page as it relates to China policy. So that means, you know, if, if we want to have DOD and state and, uh, and potentially the Treasury Department and also the Department of Commerce together to all get together, plus the intelligence community all get together and you know, do a five-way squeeze on Huawei, for example, Matt's the kind of go-to guy to go do that, right? Um, so, so that's kind of the, uh, that's kind of his role. And Matt is actually an ultra hawk. Uh, he is, he is probably the most, what I would consider structurally and ideologically hawkish member of the administration, possibly with the exception of, you know, Miles Yu, um, who is an advisor to Pompeo. But, you know, Matt, so, so you're saying Matt Pottinger is actually more hawkish than Mike Pompeo or even Peter Navarro? Well, you know, Peter, so, sort of Pompeo and Navarro are louder, but I think Pottinger is sort of that behind the scenes zealot. Like the thing with Peter, the thing with like Peter Navarro is he's in it for the fame, right? And Mike Pompeo is eyeing like a 2024 presidential run. Uh, Pottinger, he has no, he, he's not in it for the fame. He's not in it for anything else except to cause regime change in China. I mean, he, he is literally, he, it is like his life's purpose, right? Um, and that makes him a very, you know, he, he's like the type of person that can't get distracted by anything else. He has like that laser, he's like a laser guided bomb, right? Like just laser guided on that mission. Um, and evangelical i mean what's what's his uh where did his uh uh zero camp like it's almost like it's almost like religious right like he, he has this like china thing going i i, I would go further than, than religious i think i think it's i think it's 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 uh it's manichaean it's pathological it's simple symptomatic of a mental illness i don't think it's healthy to have people like that in government um i'll just be very upfront you know with you carl about that Maybe let's talk about his uh, kind of background because I think that will shed some light on how he shaped his, uh, you know, China, China opinions. And looking at Tom Pottinger's background, he actually, you know, um, kind of remind me of is Pete. You know, he's made of Pete because very similar. Uh, Tom Pottinger, I think he's Matt, Matt Pottinger, Matt Pottinger, not Tom Pottinger. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Matt, yeah, I'm sorry, Matt Pottinger. I, I, I mean, he, um, he reminds me of Pete. Uh, you know, the the, the Democratic uh, presidential candidate, uh, Pete. But uh, what's his last? I can't say his last name. What? But 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 a gig. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how to say it. But like, but Mayor Mayor Pete is a little bit different of a character, right? Mayor Pete's like a born and bred McKinsey consultant who kind of, you know, he's got an intense streak of ambition. And wants and desperate and really really wants higher office, right? He he and he remind he's actually a lot closer to somebody like Bobby Jindal, who is also incidentally a McKinsey consultant, um, but on the Republican side, um, and is also very emblematic of like a particular type of technocratic, you know, aggressive, you know, neoliberal central centrism, right? So so you could just I, I was talking about kind of in the career path because. Uh, Matt Pottinger, you know, also, you know, he started out in uh, like journalism and then 
uh, uh, reported in China and then somehow, you know, jump ship to become a Marine, right, to serve in the U.S. military, and then, you know, on becomes, then jump into politics. It's almost like this kind of uh, a cycled career track. But, but go, that's just my voice, my opinion. Go ahead. Sorry. You know, it's not as psycho as you think it is. Um, and, and here's the thing, here's, here's why, right? So he goes to, he goes to the wall street journal in like the late nineties. And then he starts reporting, you know, he starts reporting from like, I think 99 to 03 in China. If I re if I recall correctly, I'm sorry, actually. So he was at Reuters from 98 to 01 and then he, and then he was at the wall street journal from 01 to 05. Okay. So, so he, he was, a he spent he spent seven of those you know call it uh, those seven years so from ninety eight to two thousand five all reporting from China. He's he's been a China buff from you know an early age. You know he graduated from UMass Amherst you know with a with a degree in Chinese studies. He claims he is fluent in Mandarin, but actually he he's his Mandarin is actually quite bad. Um, it's just uh, he he's uh, he sort of fakes it. <laughs> um, but uh, his Mandarin. Know, Okay, for a white guy. Uh, I mean, I, I I heard his speech. Yeah, but you know, he 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 plays it up to be a lot more than it actually is. Um, you know, you he can have like a basic conversation, but like if you try to have like a sort of a conversation with you know advanced vocabulary or like you know or a lengthy a lengthy conversation with him, it just kind of falls apart. You know, what what I'll be like really upfront with is like. The guy he reported, you know, from China on a variety of topics, including SARS. You know, he he reported from China on on a couple of other things, but he got into a lot of you know scrapes, you know, with the Chinese Chinese authorities. And one of the things that he really you know got a got you know sort of a got got into his scrapes with was he was he was trying to follow around like essentially this group of you know Iranians in China who were trying to buy. You know, either nuclear equipment or military weapons um, from China, and he was trying to essentially, you know, tag them in some sort of scandal around sanctions busting, right? What time frame was this? Was this before the Gulf War? This was actually right before he. This was actually right before he left. Um. So so in O three between you know O three and O five, right? He was actually working working that story, right? Well, I'm asking this is because I'm trying to find out whether. If it's you happen around the time of Gulf War, because you know, you know, the Gulf War. One of the big reason for the Gulf War is, of course, a weapon of mass destruction. And there's that that Nigerian yellow cake story that was floating around about you know Saddam Hussein supposedly trying to acquire uh, nuclear material to build a bomb. So I was wondering if that's somehow related. You know, it was partially related to that. And and what what actually happened is. He was he was trying to uncover that inside China, right? And think about this from China's perspective. You got a foreign reporter trying to you know dig up dirt around a sensitive military transaction, at the very least, you know that could be construed as a national secret um, in any sort of society, not just China, not just China, right? And even in a Western society, that's a national secret. Um, and he's trying to go around digging up dirt on it. Uh, you know, in ways that are very aggressive. So he's just literally like, you know, like, like acting like, you know, kind of like a bird dog journalist on that. Right. And, um, and just generally just being a gadfly about it. And, and, and you're China, you're wondering, like, why do I have to like tolerate this guy? If this was a Chinese journalist trying to track down some sort of like US weapons sale to Israel, 
in this same aggressive way, you know, that person might be might be ejected from the country. Right. So like Matt Pottinger was doing this and then somewhere in this, you know, kind of, you know, process, he, he ends up getting punched in the face. Uh, he, he was, you know, apparently trying to follow some Chinese, uh, Chinese people into like a Starbucks in Beijing, you know, you know, sort of quite of a, quite of a cliche there, but like he, he followed those people into a Starbucks in Beijing and then like some state security officer punched him in the face. Um, and that left a very, and, and that, that kind of, that kind of made him unhappy. Right. Um, he, he essentially started nursing a grudge. Now I wouldn't say he nursed a grudge from that moment forward, I think, but I think it definitely crystallized a lot of, you know, a lot of biases he already had in his head around about the Chinese government. And I think from that moment forward, he started devoting himself to trying to create regime change in China, for lack of a better term. Matt Pottinger, up to that point, he was just one of the typical China watchers that we're, you know, we're familiar with, right? They, they are, uh, they have some degree of knowledge of the Chinese language. They're, they're in, in China, maybe working in the media in capacity of journalists. And then, you know, a lot of the reporting happened to be probably very subjective and colored by their own preconceptions about China. Actually, this episode about his Wrong in with uh, uh, PSB, the Chinese Public Security, actually well known because he mentioned it himself during an interview uh, with the U.S. mainstream media. You know, he, yeah. he, he yes. it's kind of his defining moment, and yeah. he, uh, you know, he except he was mentioned um, in the context of, oh yeah, I was somehow doing my job as a, as a journalist in China, and I got roughed up by this uh, CCP thug. Not like covering some ordinary story. This was not some sort of farmer who got wronged on his land or something like that, right? This was not like a human rights protest even. This was like, he was legitimately trying to like uncover military secrets, man. Like that's, that kind of like crosses a line. And I don't think a lot of people like realize that, you know, for him to sort of portray it as some sort of noble mission is, is a little bit disingenuous, I think. That's, that's, that, I think, uh, gives a, a reason for his animus to, toward China. But then, um, I think right after that, he joined the Marine. Was it after 9-11 that he joined the Marine? Way later. It was way later. So, in fact, he, it was in 05. And he wrote an article about it called Mightier Than the Pen, where he was just saying, like, oh, the sword is mightier than the pen, and I got to go, I got to go be a soldier now um in 2000 in december 2005 2005 um this is already after all the facts about iraq war is all all pretty well known and well reported yeah. right about you know how what a hoax it is there's a whole rationale of, and, of uh, yeah and, and and look you you could i'm not going to quote the whole article verbatim but he just said look I, I watched a video of an american in iraq being beheaded by you know al-zarqawi and then, uh, you know, I got really, really angry about it. And I nursed that anger for about a year. And then I came across a couple of Marine officers in, you know, the embassy in Beijing, made friends with them, and I decided to go enlist in the Marine. So that was, that was pretty much, you know, that, that, that was pretty much that process. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 but I believe he was in a, a frontline ground, right? Wasn't he working? Was he- nope. So when, once once he got in, um, he, uh, he, got, he got redirected into military intelligence. And uh, he so he went to Afghanistan, uh, and th- so so he go, goes into MI. Then he gets you know directed to Afghanistan, where he then ends up you know being part of that inner circle of you know young officers around Stan McChrystal, 
And uh, I don't know if have you seen the movie War Machine? Uh, it was a movie with Brad Pitt. Started. I think I started watching first fifteen minutes of it. I didn't finish. Got it. Got it. So basically, that's a thinly veiled, uh, you know, portrayal of Stan McChrystal's time in Afghanistan. Um, and and basically, Stan McChrystal, and for for your reader, for your listeners who don't know, uh, you know, used to head up the. Um, used to head up uh, essentially JSOC, which I think was a joint special operations command in, uh, in, in, in Iraq. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and basically JSOC is like this, uh, yeah, so basically JSOC was described as a killing machine. So uh, uh, Stan McChrystal would use cell phone metadata and other types of geotargeting information you know, sort of the same type of geotargeted advertising that um, that uh, that that like uh, uh, what you call like an Uber, you know, would use to like you know send you know to to sort of, or I'm sorry, not an Uber, like a, a Facebook or a Google would use to send ads to people, right? Use that same type of geotargeted advertising and then metadata, so social graph analysis, you know, and and use that to essentially decide who to kill with drones or special forces raids, right? So we built a killing machine out of that. Um, and it got very, very efficient, very lethal. Um, it assassinated Al Zarqawi in 2006, which I think was kind of this, and that that was where uh, that construct, you know, got ported from Iraq to Afghanistan when Barack Obama moved Stan McChrystal to go and run run the show in Afghanistan. Um, then, uh, you know, Pottinger drops in, joins you know McChrystal's inner circle. And Pottinger is not, you know, he's a journalist, right? So he's not necessarily like a special forces, you know, operator type. You know, he's not like a drone, you know, drone specialist. He's not a SIGINT guy, you know, but he helps co-author a, he is, he is a very talented writer, right? So he helps co-author this summary intelligence report with Stan McChrystal, you know, and this is, this is very, very, by the way, very abnormal, right? You have a fairly junior, um, you know, you have a fairly junior, uh, you know, Marine Corps officer, um, uh, who, who, you know, works with McChrystal. And by the way, this other general, you may know by the name of Michael Flynn, um, who ended up being, uh, Trump's first, uh, attempt at a national security advisor before he was actually removed for supposedly, uh, talking to the Russians before, uh, before Trump got inaugurated. Flynn was actually, uh, a head of, uh, DIA, uh, uh, what is it? The intelligence arm of, yep, the intelligence arm of Pentagon, basically, as opposed to CIA, right? Uh, uh, and in fact, uh, uh, Michael Flint, um, uh, so I'm pretty sure it was Michael Flynn that <laughs> leaked uh, DIA classified, uh, well, not classified anymore, a DIA report back in 2013 basically saying, uh, yeah, uh, like uh, it's a DIA assessment of about Syrian war. The assessment is that likely the result of a Syrian war is that, you know, a power vacuum will be created and some kind of uh, Islamic state caliphate will emerge out of the power vacuum by uh, Al-Qaeda types. Uh, this, this report was digged up by some conservative group by filing Freedom of Information Act. Uh, but I'm, I, I think it's related yep. because Michael Flynn's people leaked it. Uh, and it basically was to hit 
uh, Hillary Clinton, right, his, his her records as a, as a Secretary of State in Foreign Policy, and that that was supposed to help Trump to get elected in 2016. So, and, and Trump did win. Now, for for his effort, Flynn was briefly was hired by Trump. Yeah, until until the media started the. This the uh, Russian gate story against Trump, so Flynn kind of took the fall for it. Yeah. Yep. 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 So anyhow, uh, you know, when when Matt wrote this, he was just a captain, right? A captain is a very is a fairly junior rank uh, in the military for for those who who are not familiar with it. This is a this is an Army or Marine Corps captain, not a naval captain. So it's very unusual for sort of just a captain to go and you know write a fairly lengthy you know, report titled uh, Fixing Intel, a Blueprint for Making Intelligence Relevant in Afghanistan. Uh, this type of report with a major general who is the deputy chief of staff for the whole uh, Afghan ISAF um, and which has the endorsement and blessing of Sam McChrystal, the guy running all, the whole show in Afghanistan, right? This is like a huge, this is, this is sort of, this is sort of a very, um, it's just a, a big, big step up for, for young Captain Pottinger, right? And, and, you know, the, the report is pretty anodyne, actually. It's really just about like saying, like, look, like, you know, like, uh, you know, intelligence analysis is divorced from intelligence gathering, and then uh, also the problem is that, uh, you know, intelligence analysis is overly centralized. It's not localized enough, and you know, by the time like you know, intel is, you know, we, we finish analyzing intel, it's either out of date or like the analysts don't have context, so they come to the wrong conclusions, right? Like this is the kind of, it's like it's actually a pretty anodyne, pretty basic type of report. Um, so my, my sense is, you know, like Pottinger, some, somebody must've, you know, really enjoyed his company for lack of a better term. Um, somebody must've been really trying to put a shine on this kid. Um, either that, or he must've been very good at ingratiating himself into the inner circle one or the other. Right. And he, he essentially made a name for himself off both this report and also his time in Afghanistan. So then, you know, when he was able to, uh, when he when he basically uh, finished his finished his time in uh, finished his time in uh, in in the act, in active service, you know, then he he just went to you know went to work for a couple of uh, went to work for a couple of consulting firms. You know, he set up his own consulting firm. Then he went to work for a hedge fund, and then he ended up in a political career when he was appointed into the National Security Council. So, you know, my 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 gut feel is you know the funny thing is about pottinger is do you know who his dad is no actually i don't who's who's his his dad is john stanley pottinger and john stanley pottinger was a bureaucratic appointee in the nixon ford and carter administrations and john stanley pottinger according to bob woodward was the only person who discovered the true identity of the watergate source deep throat um, and he maintained that secret until 2005, when you know, Mark Felt, the former deputy director of the FBI during the Nixon administration, admitted, admitted he was deep throat. So his dad is actually a fairly senior, um, fairly senior member of many Republican administrations and deeply embedded into the Republican establishment. So my sense is that you know Pottinger, you know the junior Pottinger was was essentially some sort of you can almost think of him as a princeling, right? within that apparatus, a small princeling, but a princeling nonetheless. And he definitely had a family background, you know, to go with it. Um, but he also, you know, is a talented writer and, uh, and was able to sort of bank off that. Um, anyhow, one, one interesting thing about 
his time in Afghanistan, and then we'll move forward to to his time in China. Um, you know, in fact, in Afghanistan, there's a, process, uh, a type of practice that some Afghan warlords like to do, and uh, it's called bacha bazi. Uh, are you aware of what it is? It literally means boy play. So it's basically an older man and taking a, a, a young boy as a lover, basically raping the, the, the boy, right? Because in Afghanistan, there's a strict segregation of sexes. So so in a lot of cases, you know, these so a lot of these powerful men, especially these warlords, they would take on young boys as their lovers, you know, and, and, and basically, uh, uh, you know, a sex object, a sex slave, basically. Yes, and a lot of the uh, U.S. or international, the ISAF's, you know, uh, warlord allies in Afghanistan, uh, they uh, engaged in this practice. And it, it, uh, it infuriated many, many members of the United States uh, military there. Um, in fact, there are instances where like Navy SEALs uh, or decorated U.S. You know, US soldiers would actually you know, fight or engage in like fist fights or like, you know, like just like beat up like you know, Afghans who they caught, like, thought were doing this or they caught doing this actually. Um, and Pottinger, unfortunately, you know, leaned 180 degrees in the other way. He told, you know, a lot of people while he was in Afghanistan that the U.S. should just live and let live with this practice. So he just basically said, you know what, guys, like, if if our warlords do this, just let them do it. These guys are too critical to us. And he, he just said, just go, guys, just go turn a blind eye to it. Um, and he, he was very emphatic in this point of view. So he's a, he's basically somebody who 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 is a, like a, a protector or enabler of pedophilia, right? Um, but you know, he was he was willing to do that again for the mission. So I'm just laying this out this this type of context out there to just let you know you and your audience know like this is the type of he he's a guy who's literally willing to do whatever it takes and allow whatever you know allow whatever bad things to happen as long as it gets you know, to that, you know, larger overarching geopolitical goal that he has. In Just to give a little more context to the story. Um, so this, this, uh, this practice of pedophilia, the, the so-called boys play was outlawed during the Taliban time. So the, the legend has it, you know, the Taliban um, actually started at when, uh, you know, like two uh, rivals uh, faction of warlords start fighting over, you know, one of the, one of the boys, they kept a sex slaves and the, the the Taliban's came in and they basically hanged the warlords and that started the whole Taliban movement. And after they took power in most of Afghanistan, this practice has been strictly banned. But because uh, you know U.S. <laughs> during invasion of Afghanistan, U.S. wanted to empower the Northern Alliance warlords against the Taliban, so they kind of turned a blind eye to this practice, and so now this practice is is came back. I mean, full force. So us uh, with opium production, and you know, another thing, Taliban actually eliminated opium production in Afghanistan during the rule uh, when U.S. Uh, took over. You know now now Afghanistan is is like the one of the major opium uh, producers in the world, supplying like the ninety percent of the source for you know raw material for heroin uh, for for the rest of the world. So yeah, yeah, uh, it's you know it's it's pretty tragic. And again, like you know Matt is somebody who he he you know he 
he feels like he feels like America can do no wrong, and he's he's willing to accept whatever harm comes to you know other people as long as you know he feels like America gets ahead. So this guy ends up ends up being your ends up being your NSA advisor for China or for Asia, and then he also ends up being eventually becomes a deputy national security advisor. Period. Right. And what does he do when he's when he's actually running the show? He tilts the United States from just like this sense of like this trade war into into this full-on structural multi-dimensional conflict with China right um, he was the one who basically said you know and I quote like uh, you know back in he, he basically he didn't say this so, so much as he he uh, he articulate he put it into practice but Matt Iglesias ended up wrote, wrote this article he said you know be smart you know, Trump showed you can you know turn China into a villain on trade, but a smart politician could turn China into a unifying villain on virtually every topic. A reason to move fast and together on infrastructure, immigration, regulation, space, robotics, 5G, and next-gen education, right? Turn China essentially opposition to China into the organizing principle of American society. And that was what Matt did. Matt essentially, you know, Matt, once he got into the NSC role, you know, what was the number one, first thing he did is that he started engaging heavily with members of the, of the press corps. Uh, and he started planting a lot of, you know, planting a lot of stories <clears throat> in the press to essentially tilt the United States towards this kind of multidimensional competition with China. So he, pre- for example, he, you know, many people will, if you ask many people in the know, they'll say that uh, he basically planted that Bloomberg spy chips story. Um, that, uh, that, you know, that, you know, China is inserting, you know, buggy, buggy hardware into the U.S. supply chain. Um, he also was instrumental in driving the demonization of Huawei. Um, he also, you know, collaborated with a lot of people back in 2018 about, uh, that, you know, that whole, you know, constructive vigilance report, uh, that, you know, the Asia Society and the Hoover Institution jointly put out about sort of, uh, Oh, that's the red chip story. So that the red chip is supposedly uh, China embedded this hardware chip on the motherboard they shipped to you know U.S. companies like uh, you know Apple and Amazon, and which both Apple and Amazon denied. But the Bloomberg article quoted anonymous U.S. intelligence officials, and and this story you know was viral, was going around for a long time, and then uh, you know it was debunked. Um, I think like half a year, several months later, but by by that time nobody paid paid any attention to the. Uh, to the to the debunking article, kind of that 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 mean that the China is somehow out to sabotage U.S. tech company has already sink into the popular consciousness. Yeah, which was the goal of the article all along. Matt ends up Matt's main main jobs were a to keep Trump, and like basically he 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 would describe himself as a one way ratchet. Every time Trump escalates on China, he encourages it. Every time Trump tries, you know, de-escalating or anyone suggests de-escalation, he opposes it, right? And, you know, as a policy coordinator, it becomes very easy to act as a one-way ratchet. Um, you know, so, you know, essentially just continually tightening policy on China over and over and over again, right? Now to a point where, you know, previously extremely hawkish views, like normalizing relations with Taiwan, are now regarded as almost mainstream in U.S. discussions about China policy, right? You know, basically, you know, all of that shifting of the Overton window is due to Matt. 
And Matt also decided that he would engage with the Washington press corps, especially via friendly columnists like Josh Rogan at, or Josh Rogan at the Washington Post. And, uh, and, also, uh, and also the guy who, who did the Bloomberg spy chip story. I forgot his name. I think it was Jordan something. But um, he engaged with those guys and he decided to, to you know, turn them into his mouthpieces to continually demonize China and the press. And I think that where this kind of reached its culmination and a very tragic culmination it was, was in COVID. And so I, so before we pivot to that topic, I just wanted to like ask if there's anything else you kind of wanted to talk to talk about, you know, Pottinger, you know, pre-COVID, um, because I think Pottinger on COVID is is that is a beast of a topic in and of itself. Um, yeah, but, but how did he, you know, get to steer the admin policy though? Because I feel when like Trump came to. Uh, became president. There wasn't really a China policy per se. There's no no well formulated. You know what what is a Trump China policy? It, he just stepped into that vacuum, right? And he just basically said, you know what? Like I'm going to everything that is anti-China. I'm going to essentially just bake it into some sort of strategic, coherent, you know, in, into like a, into a, into a you know policy framework, and just apply it, right? And you know he he worked his his staff night and day to go and like to go and do that. Um, and uh, you know as someone who is senior in the National Security you know Council, you can actually do that. You can just go and integrate a bunch of POVs and and bake them all together. Um, so that's a good point because I remember um, uh, just also a co- um, further context for my audience is that uh, you know the, the, the US kind of uh, putting the screw on China actually did not start with the Trump administration uh, you know the, the preparation for, for confrontation with China was started you know during the Obama years with the pivot to Asia under you know Hillary Clinton. And in fact, well, you know, at the end of Obama years, the expectation among a lot of establishment folks was that, you know, Hillary is going to be the next president. I remember Bill Bishop, you know, another, another one of these China watchers who went out to the podcast Seneca uh, to talk about this. And he actually casually mentioned, oh, yeah, a lot of the uh, people who were expected a position in the incoming Hillary administration were uh, kind of gearing up, uh, you know, were already prepared to, you know, a more confrontational China policy. But that was disrupted by Trump because Trump was such a disruptive power. The path for confrontation with China got delayed a little bit because, you know, China, uh, Trump just threw a big wrench into the, into the machinery. But it looks like what happened was like after first the, 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 the dysfunctional, uh, craziness the first maybe like the first half year of Trump administration then you know this this anti-China crusade really gained uh, traction and really it's really started with COVID so maybe we should move on to that story yeah I would I would say the the thing the anti-China crusade was at a slow boil until until the COVID thing started getting along so for example the latest round of sanctions on Huawei which are by the way the most critical or crippling sanctions on Huawei, which prevented it from working with TSMC that got implemented in May of this year, they were not being actively considered in January of this year. So, you know, I'm I'm not going to like reveal too much about my own identity, but like I remember talking to people who 
you know, sort of were very close to, you know, the White House and the NSC, who, you know, indicated to me that those things were off the table in January. And then by the by the time May rolled around, those things suddenly were, you know, back on the table and they were implemented. And they were actually kind of a surprise to me. For the audience, uh, this, you know, all I, for the people who follow me on Twitter, all this uh, overheard, or, or most of my overheard, came from Mr. T. So, you know, I, I know some people are already questioning, you know, who, who, who is my sources? And, and there's even a, a Reddit thread, you know, where people are accusing me of being a useful idiot for uh, Matt Pottinger himself <laughs> to, to do this kind of useful White House leak. So here you go. Now you have your sources. Mr. T is it. Thanks. Uh, thanks. I appreciate, uh, appreciate that. Um, just basically, like, look, like, uh, the the whole COVID thing, it, it dramatically escalated, you know, U.S. hostility towards China. The conventional story is that, you know, China bungled COVID, the initial COVID response, and the U.S. is, you know, seeking some sort of reparations, you know, out of it. And there's, you know, there's popular anger, right, towards China, and, you know, the U.S. is just responding to that. The truth is actually, the U.S. could have gotten through COVID relatively unscathed. The U.S. actually, you know, everything that's happening in the United States now from COVID is because of, you know, actually the fault of Matt Pottinger and then his uh, his immediate boss, you know, Robert O'Brien, national security advisor, but mostly Matt. And I think that most people don't, most people in the U.S. don't know this at all. This is completely un... Sorry, sorry, let, let me interrupt you one more time. For context, you know, you, the first discovery case in U.S., uh, happened at the same time when the COVID was first discovered in South Korea, right? And the, the, the South Korea had a very effective uh, response to COVID, you know, in contrast to United States, which just let the whole pandemic run unimpeded, unimpeded for several months, right? And I, I, I talk about this on the show and also on my Twitter. Uh, my sister back in mid-January was was you know, a frantic search to get my niece tested in COVID, but she was told she hit every bureaucratic uh, red tape, uh, bureaucratic wall because you know back then the CDC regulation was that uh, no, sorry, your daughter cannot qualify for COVID testing because a she has no recent travel history to Wuhan, or b you don't have a uh, a, a sh- approve of her uh, coming to close contact with a known COVID. Patient, and it turns out that 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 was because you know the, the first batch of CDC test, testing kits were defective, so they put out the stringent test guideline specifically to limit the number of testing inside the United States, which you know did not help you know containing the epidemic. But okay, I'm sorry. Uh, go ahead. That that episode that you just recounted. That was actually because the U.S. Poli- entire policy making apparatus was actually not weighted the like weight as in like the weight of something like not weighted towards a towards a towards you know test and trace not weighted towards containing the illness in the first you know call it critical three to six weeks after china locked down wuhan so after immediately after china locked down wuhan who takes charge of the u.s covid response matt pottinger why does matt pottinger go in and this is actually all documented 
Um, so basically, you know, it's it's documented that the National Security Council, specifically Matt Pottinger and Robert O'Brien, took charge of America's initial COVID response before handing it over to Mike Pence's coronavirus task force somewhere between February 1st and late February. This is actually all this is all documented. So Matt is chairing these interagency task force meetings, right? Because Robert O'Brien is quite frankly not not a China specialist, and he wasn't necessarily he was more interested in you know handling other things for the NSC like Iran. So, so Matt goes and goes and chairs all these meetings, and in the meetings, what does he weight these things towards? So, in the first three days or four days after after the Wuhan thing breaks out, he immediately starts treating this as a human intelligence opportunity. He says there must be so many people in China who are dissatisfied with communism right now, and we should go and try to expand the expand our you know our our ability to go and recruit spots. Basically, let's go focus on recruiting spots. So, for the first four days of the that that was that. Then, you know, it turned into a sort of, oh, wow, this disease, you know, might spread outside of China. You know, this is, you know, it, it's, it's starting to show up in like, for example, like, you know, it's starting to show up on like this cruise ship. It's, you know, it might, you know, get on planes, et cetera, et cetera. So let's shut down travel from China. So then on February 1st, you saw that whole travel ban come in, right? Then what did, you know, Matt you know, sort of shift gears towards? He was like, let's make sure that China gets the blame for this, Right. So he goes off and he basically starts doing this whole like um, uh, he, he, he was the one who came up with the name Wuhan virus. Right. We, we all we all like laugh and say like, oh, wow, how like how you know, insensitive this must have been. This must have been Trump you know, just being kind of racist. No, it was not Trump being racist. It, Matt, Matt deciding to go and go and go and do this. I remember Daily Beast article actually that came out said White House officials directed US media to place the blame on China for the COVID response. Uh, but it, it did not name the name. So you know it's you know you did not name specifically Matt Pinger. There is an there is an article from Josh Rogan on April uh, in March or April where he says in February as President Trump was projecting or actually uh in, in, Feb- in February, basically, as President Trump was projecting confidence that Xi Jinping had the COVID uh, coronavirus under control, Matt Pottinger received some alarming information. The virus was spreading beyond China's borders, and uh, and and he thought there was a disinformation campaign, uh, you know, coming from China that the virus was under control. Now it was basically that was disingenuous. China was totally honest about the virus coming under control in Wuhan and in China itself. But, you know, the virus was spreading outside of China. That had nothing to do with China. But Pottinger essentially somehow made that China's fault. Okay. And then in the White House, he, you know, Pottinger basically said, okay, you know, Xi Jinping is just being, is just lying to you, Trump. Um, You know, they're engaging in a cover up. They're trying to obscure the origins of the virus. They're trying to deflect blame. Let's call it the Wuhan virus. So basically for the first week of February, that's all, that's all Pottinger did is convincing everybody in the White House that that's exactly you know what he wanted the virus called, and that you know the U.S. media should you know repeat that, right? So this is a guy, by the way, who again is coordinating the interagency task force on coronavirus, right? And if all he's talking is screaming about is basically what to call the virus, you know, it's no surprise that your you know your sister can't get like test kits, right? It's it's because it's not a policy focus of the U.S. government at the time. Um, then you know what what did what happened? Was that uh, Pottinger decided to go and uh, 
decided to go and uh, go and you know try to examine how this could weaken China's economic position. So remember that article that 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 statement that Wilbur Ross made back in you know kind of like uh, call it like late January, early February about how uh, coronavirus was going to bring jobs from China to the United States. Oh, yeah. That was all pot- Yeah, that that was all Pottinger too. <laughs> You know, Pottinger goes uh, goes off to Wilbur. Wilbur Ross is fairly old. You know, he's not necessarily plugged. He he's not necessarily he he basically treats his job as a sinecure. So so Pottinger is the one that's like feeding all this relentless sinophobia about COVID into the heads of all the all the Trump administration officials at this point, right? It's not Kushner who, by the time by the t- who even though he was an amateur, was at least trying to do the right thing and reach out to friends in the tech industry and finance to try to put together some sort of response. It's not Mnuchin who is trying to keep the lights on in the economy. It's not Navarro. It's not Pompeo. It's not like even Fauci or anyone else. It's it's freaking Matt Pottinger trying to essentially turn COVID into an opportunity to crystallize the anti-China crusade, right? And then along this, along then somewhere between, call it like February seventh and late February, you know, he and you know Robert O'Brien realize that this thing is going way out of control. So this is this is way before, by the way, this is a couple of weeks before it start, it becomes common knowledge in the U.S. that COVID is a problem. They go and realize it's a problem. So they go and actually participate in the selection process for one Dr. Deborah Birx, B-I-R-X, who you may notice no longer really appears in press briefings anymore, right? So they go and select this person who is kind of just a non-entity. They picked Birx because of her loyalty. And Potting was actually intimately involved in the, loyal, in the screening process for Birx. Now, that fact was not actually reported in Washington, D.C., but it was actually reported in Pottinger's hometown newspaper, right? You know, saying like, oh, look at this young, you know, young, uh, young, young boy from our town, you know, goes and makes good in Washington, does a lot of great things, picks Burks, right? And so Burks ends up going and, and, you know, shouldering most of that responsibility, starts becoming more of a lightning rod for COVID. What does Pottinger shift his focus towards? He starts shifting his focus towards the second order geopolitical effects of this, Right. He starts talking to you know, Trump and sort of whispering in his ear that he should freeze U.S. funding to the WHO and take the U.S. out of the WHO and try to push Taiwan into the WHO, right, all at the same, right? And then lastly, and perhaps most cruelly, you know, Pottinger started pushing all the U.S. intelligence agencies to explore the theory the virus was accidentally released by a virology lab in Wuhan and not necessarily of natural origin. Right. So that whole conspiracy theory that China made the virus or China leaked the virus, that came from him, too. Right. So mo- four of the most damaging things to the United States China relationship and also the central sort of damaging thing to the U- U.S., which is massive mismanagement and spread of covid in the United States can ultimately all be traced to the policy tilt of Matt Pottinger and his and his leadership of the coronavirus task force from January to late February. Right. That is the that is history's verdict, right? And it's not even reported in the United States. Nobody seems to nobody no journalist in the US seems to go and care about this. You would imagine that this should be kind of the story of the decade, right? Like how did the US government so massively fuck this up? But no one seems to want to report on it. Again, because, you know, I guess the war on China is a is, is a golden thing. And if we if we go and kill the golden boy of the war on China, that 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 might not be good for the U.S. So, you know, none of the none of the media outlets want to touch it. Wow. I mean, that that's uh, OK. That uh, I, I kind of wanted to ask a question, but I don't, I don't want to interrupt your narrative um, because 
I mean, this is this is a, a crime. I mean, like this, this what he has done is basically led to the death of hundreds of thousands of American yes. people. Now, do you think uh, Matt Pond will ever be brought into account for his actions? You know, like if if Paul Wolfowitz is still walking around free after directly driving the deaths of millions of Iraqis and tens of thousands of U.S. and other other soldiers. Like I don't think I don't think anyone's gonna you know gonna haul Matt Pottinger in for for this. I I I agree with you, but I you know this is a little bit different than the Iraq War because you know people in the U.S. they don't really value lives uh, lost in Middle East. They don't really care about you know brown people getting killed in places they can't even find on a map. But you know the the fact is now you know hundreds of thousands of Americans have died and. And the, the perpetrator, the, the people who are most responsible will probably never be held accountable. That that really says something, you know, like it's it's like the almost like the empire coming home to roost, right? All the problems that we used to inflict on other people around the globe is now being done inside US and and you know, nothing has been done about it. It's very sad. It is. It is completely it is completely tragic. And and one of the they're basically basically Matt Pottinger has the blood of nearly a quarter million American lives. You know, America could have had a COVID trajectory like South Korea's if America had simply just weighted its policy preferences back in January and February in a different direction. If they had actually decided to go and reach out and really actively almost like hug the Chinese to death, embrace them wholeheartedly and just said, look, like, you know, we're, we're willing to learn whatever we can about this disease. Please teach us everything you know about this disease. Um, you know, and, and, you know, those, because your economy is going to go through the shitter, we're going to drop some of the tariffs on you. We're going to help you get back on your feet. And by the way, like, you know, please, you know, you know, please work with us on getting PPE over and let's, you know, work on test contact test and trace together. It would have saved hundreds of thousands of American lives. But in Matt's head, and this is where I think it wasn't just a, you know, sort of an accident in his head. In Matt's head, he basically thought that even if it spreads to the United States, even if it ends up killing hundreds of thousands of Americans, that is a worthwhile sacrifice as long as it crystallizes American hostility to China for a generation, which it looks like COVID has. And remember what I said back back then about Bashabazi, right? You know, Matt was willing to tolerate essentially boy rape for you know advancing the geopolitical imperatives of the U.S. of the U.S. state. Now Matt is now here. Matt has demonstrated that he is willing to tolerate the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Americans for the same thing. Right? This is a guy who essentially you know he is in a position. Uh, well, at least to the election, um, uh, or, or to the to the to next year, to you know possibly engineer a, a hot war with China because you know Matt Pottinger is also pushing aggressively for you know Taiwan to yeah. basically move to a formal independence, right? And you know that's why I think the the White House the the the, the health guy Azar was sent to you know Taiwan to discuss you know like. Um, how to give them more international recognition, you know, to join uh, WHO possibly, stuff like that. And, and, and uh, you know, if he is willing to see hundreds of thousands of Americans die due to the pandemic, I mean, what is to say he, he really, uh, you know, he, 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 I don't think he would 
care about the kind of the amount of blood America must shed to fight a hot war with China over Taiwan. Yeah, people have told me that he he's he said that even if like climate change is, is an existential risk to humanity, like getting rid of the Communist Party of China is more important than that. He has also said that even if like you know COVID is an existential risk to humanity, the U.S. must get rid of the Communist Party of China first. From a policy perspective, he is literally he is a zealot, right? And this is why I say people like him should not be in government, because when you have a single-minded zealot like that in government, you end up with quite insane policy preferences. This reminds me. Um, I think I read. I think it was James Millward, even the U.S. history professor, focused on you know the Qing history uh, in Xinjiang, right? He, he, he has written many times in um, U.S. mainstream media about, you know, Xinjiang situation in China. Uh, one thing he has said publicly is, oh, yeah, Trump is bad, uh, but, you know, what Trump's policy is doing vis-a-vis China is uh, kind of our last hope to save the Uyghur people, so we must support it. And I think he's talking about, Pottinger. Now, now that you mentioned it, I think he's talking about specifically Pottinger. Terribly ironic, because Pottinger views himself as a savior of the Uyghur population. But what is the policy he proposes to go and save the Uyghur population? It is to sanction any Chinese company that employs Uyghurs. Think about this for a second. Think, like, if you, if you want to go and increase the welfare of, the pe- of a people, why would you deliberately try to make them unemployable? It, that makes no sense. But yet, you know, that is Pottinger, you know, pot in Pottinger's head, you are literally better dead than red, right? He would rather the Uyghurs, you know, not have work, be forced into deprivation, be turned to extremism, you know, go and participate in terrorist acts, you know, and, and end up being, you know, killed in the same types of, you know, airstrikes or drone strikes that he seemed to love employing in Afghanistan. Uh, rather than, you know, rather than, you know, being, being sort of culturally reprogrammed by the Chinese Communist Party. You know, that, that, is, his, that is his mentality. Uh, the whole point of sanction, economic sanction, is to make life so miserable for the common people that they would, the, I, the hope was that they would rise up against their own government to achieve the objective of regime change, right? That is a whole logic behind economic sanctions, you know, to make life so unbearable, so miserable that people will, uh, you know, willingly rise up to 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 do the regime change, and and that the the actual result of sanction, you know, it's actually pretty dismal. You know, like you know, like the the people, the, the the government uh, that and countries that U.S. had sanctioned in the past, you know, the you know, the, rather than leading to regime change, it just led to a lot of human misery in general. Yeah, it's basically gotten to the point where where now now Pottinger essentially uses the Uyghur Wager crisis or Wager situation as an excuse to justify everything he is doing to China. He literally says, like, everything I'm doing, I'm doing it for the Wagers. I'll just get out of my way. Right. Um, and, you know, it's gotten to the point where, you know, other people in the White House literally just can't, they can't, like, they can't approach, they can't change his mind on that topic anymore. Right. So you, you have a hardcore zealot who's, who is willing to sacrifice hundreds of thousands of American lives, who's willing to sacrifice the American economy, um, who's willing to go and risk nuclear conflict to accomplish just geopolitical and ideological goals, right? Like that is, that is the type of person that Pottinger is. And 
I just think that, you know, like, my goodness, like, this per, you know, there are people there, I got, I got very triggered by, I hesitate to use the word triggered, but I got pretty, I got pretty enraged by a, uh, by an article, by a Twitter article, uh, or not an article, basically, we put, like, just, just a Twitter thread saying that, you know, Matt Pottinger should be like George Kennan, right, George Kennan focused the US on, you know, you know, the Cold War for the Soviet Union, he should be, he was a geopolitical hero, a hero strategist for America. Matt Pottinger is no George Kennan. Matt Pottinger is probably the single worst geopolitical strategist the United States has ever had because he has precipitated the worst geopolitical outcome for the United States in over seven, right? This is, this is a disaster. 2020 is a disaster for American influence and power. And, and it's really all his fault, you know? And, and I just don't think that like I really, and, and the sad thing is, nobody in America seems to really even care about this. Nobody seems to want to impose accountability upon him for it. That's the amazing thing about, or or the sad state of the American democracy today is that you know people are so distracted by the talking heads um, about socially divisive issues. They 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 kind of lose track. Um, what's what's really going on behind the scenes? You know, like like the story of Matt Potting doing all these these things. It's very. I mean, yes, you know, if you really know where to look for, if you can't find the information, but this is not very commonly reported, right? It's not public. It's not like common knowledge, but it should be. I mean, this is a. Like you say, this is probably one of the biggest stories of 2020, but it's not covered because you know because it's a it's the access journalism that that you know that's that that defines um, the media today in U.S. and because kind of the the the, so the corrupt I wouldn't call it democracy the corrupt nature of the oligarchy that we live in today in U.S. You know, it, it's I, I will say. There are plenty of people who work in the White House, who work in various committees, who work in the national security, the, among the you know, sort of 400 some odd people who work in the NSC itself, who are dissatisfied with this. You know, if, if there was a journalist who really wanted to make to, to go and interview people and, and make this a story, there's enough people out there who who would who could fill who could provide the quotes and be sources for that. Um, and and as if there's if there's a Biden administration incoming, you know, I think a lot of those people might be willing to talk, you know. So so it's not we're not completely out without hope, but it is it is looking pretty grim. Um, which you know, like the Matt, Matt Pottinger's uh, action actually has a very dire uh, effect, especially on the Chinese Americans yes. in the countries. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Yeah. So Matt Pottinger's other major initiatives or, or among his other major initiatives was this crusade against the united front right and and uh or or in chinese i think it's called hualien right and he he basically thinks you know thinks of the united front as some sort of hidden plot to go and subvert and destroy the united states from within and and you know because the united front exists Everyone who is of Chinese ethnicity or part of, you know, some 600 odd Chinese American groups that have worked with the United Front before is suspect. Okay. And, and everyone who has had financial transactions with any sort of Chinese government entity or any sort of Chinese entity period is suspect. 
right? So he instantly kicked off this sort of what I would call uh, sort of velvet glove McCarthyism uh, against the whole Chinese American community in the United States, right? Just to give people a context of what United Front is, I mean, it's it's a term that came from you know the the second or the World War II during the the resistance against the Japanese aggression in China. This is a a, a, a term I think coined by either Mao or or his fellows, you know, it's Tong Yi Zan Xian, right? It's simple, sometimes shortened to Tong Zan. The idea is you wanted to build a united front across classes, you know, like the, the communists put aside the, the class rhetorics for the moment because, you know, the Japanese invasion was has dire consequences for all Chinese. So the idea is you, you reach out across the class lines across you know like you know even to, to, to you want to, you want to build as big as 10 as possible to, to, to resist the Japanese invasion that was what the United Front was and and Mao I think he called the United Front like our magic weapon right that's how he united the national bourgeoisie uh, you know the the, the, uh, the petite bourgeois and then you know all the even landlords to unite them together in the fight against the Japanese. So, so that's what the kind of the the, the United Front is. It, it, there's no like a huge like an entity. There's really like no entity called United Front. It's more like a concept. Well, I, I would I would push back on you there. There is a United Front work department, right? The UFWD, right? And it, yes, yes. Okay, okay. Tongzhanbu, right? There's there's a. It's not. It's not some sort of like. It's not some sort of nefarious, like sort of like you know, influence extending machine. What it really is is, it just it is the external engagement department of the Communist Party of China. So if you are not in the Communist Party, and you want to get in touch with the Communist Party, you literally go through the United Front Work Department. Like that's 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 it. That that's the liaison office, right? It's it's yeah, it's, I, li- it's, it's a liaison office. So yes, by definition, everyone outside of China who is Chinese who interacts with the Chinese Communist Party ends up going through the United Front. Like that's that's kind of a that's kind of an axiomatic thing, right? Um, you know, if you want to get in touch with the Chinese government, on the other hand, you go through the you go through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, you go to the embassy. So it's literally it's just because China has a dual party state system. That that that's why it has a UFWD and it also has a Ministry of Foreign Affairs. You know that's that's it, right? And certainly you could say some of the things it does are bad, right? Some of the things the government does are bad too, right? But you can't go and say that just because this thing exists that all Chinese Americans in the United States are you know suspect possible hosts for this mental virus, right? You know Matt Pottinger actually used the analogy of agents hopping from you know you know sort of blue pill to blue pill in the matrix. Like he used that phrasing. He just literally said that, you know, all the Chinese people in America are potential hosts and vectors for the evil agents of the UFWD. And you never know when they're just essentially mind controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. Like that was the type of language that he was using to describe these people. Wow. Um, yeah. And, and think about that for a second, right? Think about that for a second. That is, that is just straight up McCarthyism. And it ended up like creating some very tragic outcomes for people, right? So there was a researcher down at the University of Texas, MD Anderson, uh, their uh, their their hospital, and uh, and basically that researcher was hounded out of her job uh, because you know she was suspected again of having links to the Chinese Communist Party. But what did she? What what was her crime? Nothing. She had actually done absolutely nothing 
um, what was she, she, she was trying to put, she, she was a very successful cancer researcher. Um, and, and practically, you know, her supposed you know, crime was helping, helping advise the setup of a similar lab in a cancer research lab in China. And, you know, leave aside for the second why the United, the, the issue of why the United States should be concerned in the first place about China deciding to go and try to get a cure for cancer. Like, I don't understand why the U.S. should be opposing that at all. But, but you know, just, just the, the fact that the U.S. viewed her advising, you know, a laboratory in China and how to go set up their equipment is viewed as, you know, grounds for a crime and grounds for her dismissal. Like, that's, that's absolutely ludicrous and insane, right? And then there's many, many other cases, you know, where, you know, this kind of, this kind of, you know, McCarthyism played out. And there's another guy, a very tragic instance where it hit, uh, hit a gentleman, a also a Stanford, uh, also a professor, this time at Stanford, by the name of Zhang Shoucheng. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, Professor Zhang's, Zhang's uh, story is just really tragic. I mean, he ended up basically killing himself because of the the combined pressure that the U.S. government, you know, brought upon him, you know, and you know some financial losses he had, you know, related to trading cryptocurrency. Um, so, so this is, this is, you know, this it's it's very, uh, it's just very tragic, you know. Like the these are, you know, these are bright lights. These are these are professors that are researching cancer. Zhang Shoucheng was a theoretical physicist who was on the short list for a Nobel Prize. These are good people. These are people that you should value. And Matt Pottinger just decided to destroy them, um, and and it is it is it is evil. It is demented, um, but you know it is it is what he is doing, right? And he I think I think he thinks of the Chinese Communist Party as a demon, as a monster. But I think the real monster lives in his mirror, and it's you know it's what he sees when he wakes up every morning. To give a scale idea of the scale of the. Um, of the witch hunt, you know, I, I saw a figure floating around saying, you know, 65,000 Chinese Americans are under investigation by DOJ. I mean, that's a huge number. Like, you know, well, it's, it's, it's so, so uh, I'll caveat that I think the number is 26,000. And uh, there's there, the other thing is, did you, the other thing is like, you know, there's this other number that's floating around, which says that, you know, the DOJ has 5,000 counterintelligence or the FBI has 5,000 counterintelligence investigations, more than half of which or 2,600 are related to China. Um, but that's just counterintelligence investigations. If you actually roll up all the investigations, it's closer to 26,000. I even seen, uh, I just saw an article recently. They said most of the cases where they got these Chinese researchers on are actually for relatively minor things like visa violation, right? And, and like, I think they recently arrested some, uh, some Chinese researcher. I think she's also a cancer researcher. Uh, the reason is she lied on her visa application because, she, you know, she, she didn't view that she has affiliation with the Chinese Communist Party, right? On, on the visa, or actually, it was more. It was even more specific. They they're going after people that graduated. Uh, they're they're basically grabbing people on whatever they can, and the easiest ones are are those visa visa application violations you you uh, you outlined, right? There is there's really no no rhyme or reason to it. They're also attacking people, you know, sort of white people or or you know, non Chinese people. They're attacking those people as well for having links to China. So they investigated this Harvard bio, you know, uh, I think it was chemistry professor who, uh, who, you know, essentially took funding from the Chinese government 
right? And they just tried nailing him on a disclosure form violation as well, right? So this this is this is just straight up. And and by the way, the Harvard professor he noted that during the Obama administration, he was encouraged by the U.S. government, in fact, by the U.S. embassy in China, to go and set up these research links with Chinese universities. And now the U.S. is going and hounding him for doing just that thing uh, and saying that he didn't disclose it back to the U.S. government. You know, he says, I feel like Saddam Hussein, right? You sell me the WMD and then you go and attack me for having WMD, right? Like, what's, what's, the, what, what, what's your deal, right? But, uh, you know, that's, that's, it is what it is. Yeah, I mean, because right now the, the U.S. policy toward China is, is committed to the full decoupling, right? I mean, that looks like what it is. You know, they, they, people have been floating that idea around for a long time. And, and, and for all intents and purposes, that's, I feel that's what we're witnessing here. That's what their, their, their end goal is, if there is an end goal. It is a full decouple of U.S. and China and to cut off all links. And it's basically to intimidate people to, you know, to who may have ties to China to work, to, to prevent them from work or cooperate with China in any way. Yes. Yes. In fact, like there's a there's an article in the South China Morning Post a couple months ago just saying that like uh, U.S. executives that end up working for Chinese companies uh, based in the U.S., or uh, that end up working for, uh, you know, just working in any way related to China. They're like, for example, if you're a lobbyist or you're a public relations guy, like you work for a Chinese co- and you take a contract with a Chinese company, you're gonna, you might, you might end up being under investigation and via a FISA warrant. So FISA is the is the is the secret court in the United States that releases that allows like the NSA to basically wiretap you without your knowledge, right? And he was, they were just basically saying the U.S. just might go after you without your knowledge. There's like this panopticon or sort of Damocles effect hanging over you. And it's extremely intimidating, you know, for a lot of these people. And some people say it was actually part of the reason why, uh, why uh, Kevin Mayer quit TikTok. Uh, the CEO of, CEO of TikTok USA quit is because he was essentially, you know, targeted by something like that. And the U.S. media is playing uh, an enabling role in this because uh, just as U.S. is doing this witch hunt within U.S. against people of Chinese heritage uh, or Chinese nationalities, like what do you see in mainstream media? They're saying they're reporting China threatened to arrest Americans in retaliation. It's it's complete madness. It's complete madness. And the article, if you actually read the article, it, it actually has no source. It literally says people have said this. It didn't even say, it didn't even say like an anonymous U.S. intelligence officer. It just says people have said, you know, this is what they heard the Chinese officials said. There was no, no, nothing was giving a name, a place. Uh, uh, you know, setting. You know, they didn't say which Chinese official in what capacity. It just says people. Literally, in the article, it says people said yes. China threatened. I mean, it's it's so shabby journalism. You know, that's 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 because of two things that Matt Pottinger did as well. So the you may have noticed that since 2017 to now, you know, the U.S. and China have been kicking out each other's journalists, right, from from the country. Yes. Yes. So, so one side effect of that is that the quality of reporting, you know, on both sides about the other side has been going down, way down, especially from the U.S. side, 
you know, the U.S. used to have like maybe like 40 or 50 or 60 journalists in China that were like that could talk to Chinese people and get Chinese sources. So there was a certain minimum standard in their in their articles, minimum quality standard that no longer exists anymore. Instead, like their report, they're making reports about China while they're trapped in like Taipei or like the New York Times just set up its China bureau in Seoul, Korea. Right. Or, you know, they're in Tokyo or they're in Singapore or in fact, they're back in the United States and they're still typing up reports about China. So you may notice there's all these reports that are basically like I went on the Chinese Internet and I saw people writing nasty things about America. Let me translate what they wrote. Or I went on the Internet and I saw a Chinese press release that had the words like Xinjiang in it. Let me translate what they wrote. Right. Like you see a lot of these reports coming out. And that's because these people are no longer in China. They, they, they're running out of things to write about. But what that means is that when people like Matt Pottinger dispense his little nuggets of like, oh, this is what's going on in China, those things suddenly become more and more credible. You see what I mean? So like, so, so his, yeah. Uh, I wanted to go to the, the latest um, China watching story that's related to sure. this. Uh, which you is, want to talk about balding, right? Yes. Professor Rogaine. Yes. So, so right now, um, you know, this, this just like recent, we're very close to a U.S. election now, and the latest supposedly big scandal is uh, some some expose that would expose Hunter Biden, uh, like the son of, of uh, Joe Biden, supposedly some shady dealing with the US, with the Chinese Communist government, right? That that's supposed to be super damaging, and. Um, and it turns out um, the report that that you know all the source, the source material for all these uh, the, the on, on Hunter Biden was came from a very specific source. A naming uh, uh, so so the NBC News just did a, a report on this. Um, and so apparently this American this American professor who used to work in China, he, he used to either work for Tsinghua or, or, or Beida, right? And, and, but then he was kicked out, he was fired. Uh, so he, he, he is now actually in, um, before the news broke out, he was working as an associate professor at Fulbright University in Vietnam. Uh, this guy by the name of Chris Baldi. Now, Chris Baldi is quite infamous on the so-called China Twitter because he, he tweets a lot. He's uh, kind of the, a lot of the mainstream journalists actually quote him for because he gave them like very good somebody. He, he, his nickname is Dial-A-Quote. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because he gives Twitter what they want, right? It's always the most sensational anti-China stories. And he, just before the story on Hunter Biden, he was actually invited. I did, um, he, he actually did a story on Huawei, right? Like, was he... Yes. Okay, can we talk about that? Yeah, so basically he said, he, he went and said, Huawei is, you know, Huawei has this, you know, whatchamacallit, this, like, uh, this employee share ownership structure, right? I'm going to go and retranslate all the documents about this employee share ownership structure. Lo and behold, I translated all of them. Guess what they, like, and, 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 and they basically say Huawei is owned by its employees. But then Balding basically says, aha, they don't actually mean that. They mean that Huawei is controlled by the Communist Party of China. Like, it was like this complete, like, non sequitur, intuitive leap of logic. And he just basically did it. And he said, like, I am, I am a China hand. You know, I can read Chinese. Trust me. And, and he was quoted by every freaking China journalist. I mean, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, 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 had, I, had, I had people that I didn't. 
like I, you know, I have people in the tech industry who I just didn't, who I didn't really know, like were interested in China at all. They would come up and say, like, is Huawei like really owned by the Chinese Communist Party? And and it would just be, it would just be, you know, insane. Like I, I, you know, it was, you know, I, I, I don't work for Huawei. I, but, you know, I even, even, even so, like, I was just, I was just floored that like, hey, like, why, like, why would you be talking to me about this? And why, why would, why would this, like, why would you even think this from that report? Right? Like, so, so it was, it was just very surprising. Uh, and, you know, like, he claimed that he had some, uh, you know, secret leak, right? Secret, secret Huawei leak. Um, you know, which was questioned, but actually by security experts. And they, you know, some some people said, "Oh, you know, yeah. like that's not that secret. Those are not secret anymore. It's just like they, they have some bad uh, elastic uh, uh, elastics." No, no, no. It was even simpler than that. Basically, he he went and said that a Telnet backdoor, which by the way actually isn't even a backdoor, existed in Huawei's equipment. What did it actually mean? It's it's literally a system diagnostic tool. It's literally like, it, it's literally like, a, it's like a, if a Huawei technician goes to a box and has to like figure out what's wrong with it, there's like a, there's a way that he can get into get in and read the read the logs on the box. But if he did it, he'd have to ha- a have access to the box. Where are the boxes? The boxes are usually in the in the central offices of the service providers the telco carriers that have actually bought Huawei's equipment. So, so they're like, they're, you know, the, the Huawei technician couldn't actually take any data out with him. They, he would, he would be in his customer's facility. So there, there's nothing that Huawei tech could do with that supposed backdoor that he couldn't, you know, that, that, that he, uh, that, that, that he couldn't do, you know, elsewhere. You know what I mean? I mean, the fact that Chris Bowden, he's, Title is an economics professor. He posts himself as his like, like premier China hand on everything, including tech. Right? What does he know about tech? He knows nothing about tech. He knows he knows absolutely nothing about technology. This is yes. In October eighth, this is this month. You know, like an AI conference, right? In United States. Yes. With 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 people like uh with people like Li Feifei. Who, uh, who who actually knew uh, Zhang Shoucheng very well is also a Stanford professor, and she runs the Stanford AI Lab with people like Eric Schmidt, with people like uh, with people like um, what you call it? Um, blank, I'm blanking on the name now, um, but but uh, but another AI scientist as well. Like he, he's yeah, all the big shots, and 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 Chris Bowden is this like nobody who his claim to fame is all his concocted crazy China stories he posts on his Twitter profile. And 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 um, so I took, I guess all these success just got over his head. So he did, he, he went to the next level. So he he uh, according to the story by M- uh, NBC News, he worked with Apple Daily. Uh, in fact, he, he you know I think Apple Daily may have paid him because Apple he said Apple Daily commissioned a story. Right on uh, Hunter Biden. So basically, the originally when the story broke, it was supposedly came from a Swiss security consulting uh, uh, consulting firm by this uh, Swiss guy, and uh, 
and and it was supposedly very damaging material on Hunter Biden. So what M MSNBC had found out is actually the picture they used for this uh, security consultant dude is AI generated, right? So it's a fake persona, and uh, when they confronted. Uh, so all the material initially got posted on, by Chris Baldwin on, on his Twitter and on his blog, right? And, and so when, when NBC uh, went to interview Chris Baldwin, he said, uh, 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 yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, I know it's, a, it's, a, it's not a real uh, a person, uh, but it's a person I, I know for, for a long time, you know, we have to use a, a fake identity to protect his... Uh, to, to you know to protect his personal safety and he admit he actually doctored a portion of the report and he, he, and he and in addition to that he mentioned that this report was paid for by Apple daily you know the most circulated uh, um, tabloid in Hong Kong and Taiwan owned by the, Thai, uh, the, the, the Hong Kong billionaire Jimmy Lai who just happened to be like the most anti CCP backer of the Hong Kong protests, both in 2014 and Brown Movement and the latest Hong Kong protests, and who you know worked very closely with the U.S. government and U.S. State Department because Jimmy Lai actually came to U.S. and met with all the big shots, you know, Pompeo, Mike Pence, um, and and was Bolton still in the administration? I think even Bolton when Bolton was still in the administration. So so it's very this is like a big big story because um, because you know before uh, uh, Bolton could make up all these stories about China and the media would just eat it up. But this time he is t he bite a, a more than he could chew because he now he's he's basically going after Biden. On behalf of Trump, so so that he, he started he started smearing a target that could fight back, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Yes, right. Like Huawei yes. is not. There's no friends for Huawei in the U.S. You know, U.S. U.S. Uh, U.S. establishment. But like you know, like you you attack Joe Biden. Obviously, there's going to be a ton of people who are going to hit back, right? And <laughs> and Balding is just folding like a cheap suit. And and not only did he fold like a cheap suit, he folded in such a way that 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 like where he basically threw his own his own allies under the bus before you, you know like even before the, uh, he, he was exposed i mean the whole the the story about how the whole story coming biden story got propagated is so shady right and first it was purchased by uh apple daily and it was propagated by uh chris Biden and then through help of steve bannon right who was in the pay of um of uh, um, he went he so he went on a couple podcasts. He went to he, he think he went to talk on China Uncensored, which is linked to you know the Chinese call Falun Gong, right? The the, the banned Chinese call Falun Gong, and then he also went on to a podcast by by Steve Bannon, right? And 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 then you know Steve Bannon, of course, is bankrolled by by Chinese fugitive Chinese billionaire uh, Guo Wenghui, right? Guo Wenghui has been. Uh, Hiding out in U.S. from the Chinese law for for a few years now, and he's uh he's he he finance all these kind of Chinese dissident groups uh, to make noises, especially on Twitter, and 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 they helped um so they helped to decimate uh to 
to to propagate the the Chris Biden story on on Hunter, and then it was also picked up by the Falun Gong channels because um, you know Falun Gong uh, one of its biggest uh, uh, news media is. Uh, Epoch Times, right? So, so you know, for people who don't know, Falun Gong after they moved to United States, they got funded uh, by BGG, the uh, the board of uh, um, BBG, the the board of broadcasting governors. Now, now the now the agency has been renamed a uh, U.S. Media. Um, in media agency, um, and and basically, Falun Gong was funded by United States government <laughs> and, and channel that money to a media arm, and then uh, you know Falun Gong also receive all these tons of money apparently from the you know uh, people like Guo Wenghui. So they start to push uh, uh, push like pro Trump propaganda basically. They bought a lot of Facebook ads, um, and that's when Falun Gong start to get exposed by U.S. Uh, mainstream media. Before they were also hold us as a persecuted religious group, you know, by the evil, bad, evil Chinese Communist Party. But after they started uh, swinging to the pro-Trump camp, you know, again, the media went after them. And again, they, they helped uh, to decimate the... So, so they, they, one of the things they, they propagated before on, on their, face, through their Facebook ad is a Q Anand uh, conspiracy theory, right? And then, <laughs> and then this time, you know, again with a kind of a, the explosive Hunter Biden story. Um, so, so of course, it's you know, like this is a, the, the the media went after them, and and Chris Biden's role was exposed, and then he exposed Apple Daily. Um, but even after all this. Uh, but, but, but okay, maybe maybe I should uh, should stop my run and let you let you put your two cents in here. Hello. Yeah, so I think the big thing is, like as you said, there's a lot of kind of shady and semi shady, you know, actors that have <laughs> gathered around to sort of beat on Biden for his supposed links to China, and I think Balding is just you know one of those. But I think Balding is is sort of a special case in that I think he's the dumbest one out of, <laughs> out of all of them. Um, you know, he, he essentially, he, when, when, when he started getting heat for his Biden China report, what did he go do? He, he went and he went and did three very dumb or two very dumb things. The first very dumb thing is he went and talked to an NBC reporter about it. NBC is, is part of the, the other team, man. They're not going to like give, you know, balding any sort of sympathetic ear, right? They're going to twist everything he says out of context. But he goes and tries to talk to an NBC reporter to quote unquote clear the air, right? Dumb, right? Then the second thing is he, he discloses something that he thinks will stay off the record, but which is just way too juicy for the NBC reporter, who, by the way, doesn't give a fuck about, you know, what he, what, what he says or doesn't say, um, which is that Apple Daily commissioned him to write this story. That is that is actually complete. That is explosive. That is explosive because it could potentially create both the disclosure of a you know CIA or other intelligence community operation running out of Apple Daily, and also expose that person who was running that operation uh, to a Hatch Act violation. So so that like that creates like massive liability issues for whichever IC person was involved. 
even even disregard the CIA ties, that itself is literal foreign interference in U.S. election because Apple Daily yeah. is a hot yeah. news outlet, right? <laughs> it's not even like the Epic Times, right? The Epic Times can claim, "Hey, we are you know domestically based." Li Hongzhi lives in you know New upstate New York. You know, and, and Falun Gong is just a Falun Gong USA. We are just 100%, you know, as American as apple pie, right? They can claim that if they want to. But the Epic Time, but the Apple Daily, yes, as you say, is a Hong Kong-based company. It's a, it's an, and, and, uh, and as Mark Simons from the Apple Daily's, his statement indicates, he commissioned this, the research for this was done out of Apple Daily's Taiwan office. So, you know, this was, entirely cooked up overseas yeah i mean like this is a real chinese interference in the u.s election we're talking about here guys you know like like they, this is a story that uh you know the media has been been uh, running for for a while without getting any traction but this is real this is, this is a real chinese interference uh, in u.s election except instead of coming from the chinese government it's actually from the anti <laughs> chinese government camp which made it so hilarious um and and these camps and these are the people who have been received funding from us all throughout these years because uh you know one of the things about apple daily is that even though the owner of apple daily uh jimmy Lai is supposedly you know so-called anxious Mupa murdoch and is supposedly a billionaire but apple daily actually has been running in red for several years now i mean it was bleeding and and so the have been question is how is he able to keep up his operation and, and on top of that he was bankrolling you know um the, the hong kong protests you know ever since the umbrella protests in in uh, 2014 that one was actually reported you know that the you know, hong kong media has reported him bankrolling the 2014 umbrella movement um but so so the you know there's always a question about his founding right who who, who or what is founding him you know through all these kind of you know like his his money losing ventures with apple daily right now even though apple daily is has a larger circulation in in hong kong and taiwan and because but because you know like um like it was stridently uh, anti-china because the pressure f- by the Chinese government, a lot of you know advertisers start starting to avoid them. So so they they have been having financial trouble for a while now, right? So I mean, it's plausible that um, you know the U.S. government could just could have been using Apple Daily and Jimmy Lai as a cover to 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 basically pump money directly into the Hong Kong protests, right? So go ahead. Yes, and 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 here's the problem: if they really were Right. And they were doing it via, let's say, let's say, you know, off the books accounts or some other accounts that were hard to track. And then let's say that Mark Simon decides that to use those same accounts to go and pay balding for this uh, delightful piece of opposition research, then basically someone in that funding chain committed, committed, committed two things. They committed a hatch act violation and they committed money laundering. Right. Or maybe I should uh, introduce to my audience the character of Mark Simon because he's a he's like a long term right hand man for Jimmy Lai, right? He's like the number two. He's like the con- yeah, yeah. And Mark Simon, he has a very interesting family background, right? I, I think his dad is like what CIA for thirty years. Thirty five. 
Yeah, and and he himself, I think he 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 interned for CIA, and he openly talked about this, right? But but in the article where he said, "I am not a spy," <laughs> I just have to happen happen to. Well, that's, that's, he, he doesn't he doesn't engage in intelligence collection. He's he's obviously just a handler for a, for for a prize asset, and the prize asset is Jimmy Lai. Right? Yeah, I mean, I just find he, you know, I think he, this guy protests too much, you know, like, like, oh, despite my family's extensive CIA connection, you know, yeah. <laughs> and my sort of a, sort of a city win somebody on type. Of yeah, thing. exactly, <laughs> exactly, and yeah. and uh, so you know, he's been long suspected, you know, spe- there's a lot of speculation in Hong Kong that he's he's uh, he's basically a. Uh, you know, like a, some, like you say, like a CIA handler for for Jimmy Lai, <laughs> because he he's very closely associated, right? These two, he's he's uh, Jimmy Lai's right hand man, and uh, you know, the 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 fallout of the Chris Balding affair was very swift, right? You, you want to talk about that? Yeah. So basically, immediately after he he revealed that to NBC, NBC publishes it, and then he. Balding, uh, Balding realizes he has committed a major party foul, right? Like he's stepped in some deep doo doo, and he puts on this huge apology thread, right? Which is that like, uh, like I'm so sorry, like blah blah blah, like I did not mean to go and disclose that I was getting funded by Apple Daily. You know, I'm so sorry, Jimmy. You know, blah 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 blah, and he he refuses to name Mark Simon as a person he was working with on this story. Um, then Jimmy Lai, he, you know, now that now the hot potato got transmitted over to Jimmy and Jimmy immediately has Apple daily release a statement saying that it was not, you know, Apple daily's fault. And then Jimmy personally says it was Mark Simon's fault. Then Mark Simon releases a statement, basically falling on his sword and assuming all responsibility for this whole thing. Right. Um, and, and basically saying, I've let Jimmy down. I've let everyone at Apple daily down. I've let all the readers down. I'm so sorry. Yada, yada, yada. I'm quitting Apple Daily, you know, yada. And and remember, he's been Jimmy's right hand man for 20 years, and for a 20 year sort of, you know, sort of almost like, uh, sort of number one, number two type of relationship to dissolve, in like you know, kind of the blink of an eye like that, and for that all to dissolve over like, you know, Balding being a dumbass, like that's kind of, that's kind of something, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. Somebody made a phone call really quickly because Bobby already got fired. I mean, like the you know, oh yeah, yeah, that happened too. Oh, that, that's almost like an afterthought now. But yeah, that happened too. <laughs> well, yeah, Bobby is expendable, right? But but still, it happened very quickly because as soon as a story broke, I, I, I think you, you're the one first alerting me. Oh look, a Chris Balding's uh, page on on Fulbright uh, University of Vietnam has become a photo for her. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, he literally got sent down the memory hole. <laughs> yeah, Google Archive still have his picture when you search for it, and uh, and then then you know in his Twitter profile, he hasn't had time to update. You know, it still says I am the professor at the Fulbright University. In Vietnam, and 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 but you know the then the Fulbright University actually issued um, 
like a statement. They're, they're basically washing their hand. Um, they said, oh, yeah, like basically doing damage control, saying, oh, uh, yeah, actually, the, he hasn't been with being employed with us since like September 10, because, you know, when his contract was up for renewal, it didn't get renewed. But as you pointed out, like, until very recently, <laughs> the, the, the website still show him as a professor. And even during the October 8th AI conference that Chris Balding attended, he was listed as associate professor at Fulbright University in Vietnam. So, so it, 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 it looks like somebody made a phone call somewhere and, you know, Balding, Balding was, you know, he, he, he got fired. And then, and then Jimmy like you know, Balding made this, uh, and he, he uh, he's just a dumb guy. He, he, in Twitter, he said, oh, I apologize to Apple Daily and Jimmy Lai for, you know, for revealing this information, which he had no business revealing in the first place. And, and uh, you know, he said, oh, but I said it was off records. Like, okay, so, and then Jimmy Lai, of course, put out the disclaimer that, oh, I know nothing of this. It's actually Mark Simon that arranged the whole thing. Yes. And, 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 and yes. yeah, yeah, this has nothing to do with me or the Apple Daily. I mean, it, it, it does look like, you know, somebody... So, so if, if the Biden administration chooses to investigate this, right, as, as hard as, like, the Trump administration chose to investigate the Steele dossier, like, this could actually create severe problems for the Hong Kong protest movement. Because let's say, like, let's say that the U.S. government did route funding through Apple Daily, right? Um, whoever was involved in that funding chain would have to like demonstrate that their funding was not commingled in any way with the with the funds that with like the bank accounts that were involved in funding anything that Chris Chris Balding and Mark Simon were doing on the Biden dossier, right? So so that that disclosure alone would be hugely damaging to the Hong Kong protest movement, which has always claimed, by the way, they've claimed like. It's like basically they they keep saying stuff like like they're like like a monk caught in a whorehouse, right? They're basically saying like like oh man, like I I am totally I'm totally chaste and pure, and I have nothing to do with America, and I'm a completely localized movement, yada yada yada. But like if the sordid details come out, and they are coming out in the context of the of a Department of Justice investigation from the United States, it is very hard for the Hong Kong protest movement to deny that. Their whole narrative gets crushed, right? I think it's pretty obvious when as soon as the National Security Law got get passed in Hong Kong, the Trump administration cut off the funding through to Hong Kong through the National uh, Endowment of Democracy. I mean, that's pretty telling already. Um, but I think, so, okay, I, I, I actually disagree with you a little bit about, you know, potential impact to the Hong Kong I mean, there's impact, no doubt, but I don't, I don't necessarily think it would be debilitating impact to the Hong Kong protest movement because that's just too geopolitically used for you to United States. Uh, for sure, for sure. Like, I, th I think, I think, I think, which is why I caveat by saying if the Biden administration chooses to investigate this, right? Like, Biden becomes the next president, right? So, I mean, is that, is that like, uh, decided, pretty decided at this moment right now? Or <laughs> are, we, are we predicting election? I mean, it, the the, the five thirty eight odds are like ninety to ten, but like which would really make this uh, latest move really stupid, right? This this whole whole last minute Biden yes. uh, affair, Hunter Biden affair, and and oh yeah, I I just 
it, it just it, leave aside, you know, what the potential impact of the U.S. power foreign policy will be for the moment. But just just think about this, right? China, United States is funneling funds overseas to all these like anti anti China groups, and these anti China groups are now redirecting those funds <laughs> into meddling in the U.S. domestic politics. That's what we have seen, what happened, right? First, we follow and go with yeah. Epoch Times, right, when they're pushing the, the pro-Trump uh, uh, QAnon conspiracy on Facebook. And then now, with uh, again, with, with this uh, Hunter Biden story, it's like the empire coming back to bite us in the ass. I mean, like, it's it's like, the, again... But, but, but I, let, me, let me tell you something here, Carl. This isn't the first time this has happened. This ha this this happened in 1968. This ha you know, are you aware of something called the Chenault affair? Okay, you tell me. Okay, so Anna Chenault, who was who was Gen U.S. General Claire Chenault's uh, widow, um, ended up becoming like a de facto lobbyist for the South Vietnamese government in the 1960s. In the 1968 election, LBJ basically wanted to uh, wanted to was no longer running, and he was about to he wanted you know his his the Democratic candidate Hubert Humphrey to win. So as part of his plan to help Hubert Humphrey win, he wanted to negotiate a peace treaty with North Vietnam in 1968. Um, Hold on for a second. Hold on, I thought. For people, my audience, uh, who don't know who Chanel is, uh, you know, Chanel is, is this American general who went over, he was famous for going to China during World War II to leading the Flying Tigers. And he married a Chinese woman, you know, and many years of his, his junior. That's Anna Chanel. She, she, she married him, she came to the United States, and she also had deep ties with the KMT government, right? Yep. Even after yep. Jiang Kai-shek flew to flew to Taiwan. Uh, so I think that's where how she um, ended up to having ties with the South Vietnamese government, right? Yes, and where she ended up having ties to the U.S. Republican Party, not just the South Vietnamese government, but also into the U.S. Republican Party, and specifically into the Nixon campaign in 1968. And she basically, you know, in the, the, the negotiations between the U.S. and North Vietnam also included South Vietnam. So what she would do is she would encourage the South Vietnamese government to deliberately screw up the negotiations by putting out outlandish, like extreme demands that the North Vietnamese could not accept um, with the aim of delaying any peace agreement until after the 1968 elections. So as to, you know, essentially, you know, make LBJ stuck with the Vietnam War and by extension make uh, make the Democrat Party stuck with the Vietnam War at the time. And she did this in coordination with the Republicans and with the Nixon campaign. And it was actually successful. And LBJ actually knew about, he knew via phone tapping that this was happening and he chose not to do anything about it because you know he feared that if, if this thing did leak out, it would worsen the United States negotiating position you know, relative to the North Vietnamese. Um, so... You know, he bit the bullet. He did the honorable thing. He retired. He retired. Hubert Humphrey did not get elected. Nixon got elected. And then what happened? The war in Vietnam dragged for another four years for the United States. And the U.S. lost an additional 35,000 men. Um, and, you know, millions of Vietnamese died because of it. And it was all because of essentially election interference by one Anna Chenault. 
but you know, in the 1970s, the whole idea of church commission was to stop, you know, CIA and the CIA interference in, you know, U.S. domestic politics. It was supposed to be a firewall, right? I mean, that that's, it looks like that is breaking down right now. That's what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. So so yeah, that th- those those things are breaking down. Yes, you're you are correct and and it is it is you know good of you to note the 75 commission as well. Um yeah, so any anything else like, I mean this, I just find this whole affair is entirely comical because um it's it's like no, I, I think I think it's actually a har- it's not just comical, it's also a harbinger of things to come. As more and more of these chickens start coming home to roost, I think that I think that politics in America is going to become increasingly polarized, increasingly susceptible to this kind of, you know, kind of, you know, kind of action. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's just going to, it's going to kind of suck for like, you know, average Americans. You know, it's, it's really just, it's really not a good thing. Well, I mean, that's, that's happening right now. That's, that's, that had happened even before the COVID. I think, I think you can be traced to the start of the Great Recession, right? The, the, right, before, like to, to 2008. Um, you know, the economy hasn't really, I mean, it, it recovered in certain t- sector. You know, the tech sector recovered. But the other, the, the people who are not employed in, in finance or, or tech, they're still not you know, back to where they were. And, and, you know, that's why there's so much anxiety in the U.S. I think, I think that that's all this economic anxiety is driven, driving the, the political polarization. Um, and, you know, we, I'm, I'm, you know, we're really on the cusp of election here. Not today. It's, uh, what, October 31st in Bali, and I think it's October 30th in U.S. still, right? So we're, we're like, literally days away, you know, from when the, the, the next administration of the United States is going to be decided. Um, and, and this is going to be potentially, whatever the result will be, I think, um, I think it is a high chance you might be a disputed election and even if even if Biden wins with overwhelming uh, landslide I think it's gonna live a very bitter taste in whoever loses this election whichever side right and 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 I think that's that will have consequences for many years to come very, very unfortunate but I, I wanted to bring attention back to the Baldwin's affair is that all these China watching community, right? All these people in the journalist circles uh, who you know make a living out of writing about China for years, they yes. have boosted Chris Balting. You know, retweeted him, uh, quoted him, yep. you know, interviewed him, and all of a sudden, right? When Chris Balting, because his pure sheer stupidity for signing up on this uh, Biden affair, made him. Totally toxic. Everybody now is yep. pretending they don't know him. Everybody's dogpiling him, like pretending they're not the ones who just boosted yep. him like yesterday before the NBC news story came out. And it's it's really, I mean, it's really a shit show. Like you expose these people for what they are. Oh yeah, yeah. The whole the whole China Watcher community suffered. Like their credibility suffered in this in this affair. Like none of them come out looking good, right? Like. Like uh, what? What's his face? Uh, 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 like uh, Paul, James Palmer, and then uh, and then you know Mike Griffith, 
and uh, you know folks like um, you know other other sort of journalists like you know on the New York Times, on the Wall Street Journal, on like you know Axios, like Bethany Allen, Ebrahimian, like all these people, like you know they were associated. They quote liberally quoted Chris Balding on on a bunch of topics, especially on Huawei, and. You know, then then they now they're all saying like, oh, I you know this guy is a terrible guy. I think he has like questionable judgment. You know, blah blah blah. Like it's it's completely and and when they quoted him on Huawei, they basically said like, oh, this guy is like very reputable. He is you know taught and taught in China before. He knows China. Yada yada yada. You know, of course we should trust him. You know, just again on the strength of his reputation. And now they're pillaring that very reputation, right? So it's like a it's it's a total one eighty, and it just really. It just really shows that you know most of the most of the media when it comes to reporting China is just full of shit. It's a pack of hyenas, that's what they are. Um, and and but the sad thing is, you know, none of these people, unless they do something as stupid as Chris Bolton, will never be held accountable because you know you know we're. Uh, uh, you know, I think this is where I really differ a little bit. I think what's going to happen is, you know, people like Chris Bowden will be thrown to the wolves because, you know, to <laughs> to, to pay for their mistakes. But the, the rest of the wagon train will move on. You know, the, the, the China watching community will cheer out anti-China stories as they, they normally do. And, uh, you know, even if the Biden administration or, or certain members of Biden administration um, you know, remain vengeful over this this uh, Hunter Biden story. They will maybe just go after uh, specific members, like like maybe Mark Simon, right? The the, the guy who was a uh, right hand man of Jimmy Lai. And in the larger scheme of things, people like Mark Simon is just a cock in the uh, in the wheel, right? But they they don't they're replaceable. Right, I mean, like the Jimmy Lai himself. I don't know. He 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 might be too valuable for the U.S. He might get a slap on the wrist. Um, but you know, they the, they will they will try to keep the shit show going. Um, and, well, like what I, what I think is what I think is is being left out of all this is like this. You know, China is just not gonna. This is you know if if I if I was again like working for a Chinese like Chinese like intelligence agency I would not just like leave this alone right this is a, this is like a free gift right like and there this opens a lot of different opens a lot of different doors in terms of how how to play the situation I I, I think you're too uh, you're too American in this <laughs> in your mentality <laughs> maybe I just don't maybe. Think, I just don't think uh, that's how the Chinese uh, government works. I mean, it's not like they they don't want to uh, let you know gain some leverage out of this. But uh, it's from my observation, uh, uh, you know, of past- they might not be as hyper aggressive about this sort of thing. Right, right. I, I think what they would likely do. I don't know if you listened to my interview with Mr. G. Is uh, I actually I agree with him. What, what likely what the Chinese government will do or adopt a wait-and-see approach. There, there is, I mean, it's only a few days away from election. They're probably going to wait out until how the next administration is going to shape up and how their, um, their China policy may or may not change, and then respond to that. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're holding their cards in their hands right now, uh, but I don't think they're, they're, they're willing to show their hands yet. So, so um with that, we're coming to two-hour mark. Is there anything else you would like to talk about? No, I think we're, uh, we're you know, this is this is this is a uh, you know good good to good, I think a good coverage of the last uh, last couple of weeks of, of things, and also you know, definitely 
definitely good to talk about like that about potting or the monster right so uh yeah so, yeah so, let's yeah. hope let's hope he gets what he deserves i mean i i don't think he will um unless as you say somebody in biden administration is really uh going to go after his ass um do you do anything you'd like to promote anything i'd like to anything i'd like to 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 promote oh you mean uh like uh you know talk talking about like a twitter account or anything like that sure if you have any social media account you want my followers to follow yeah yeah so so definitely uh you know you can follow me on social media on uh the daily mao um i you know like uh you know i think some of your listeners may also may already follow me but for those who don't you know that's a that's kind of a quasi satire account that i that i operate and uh and uh, it's supposed to mock you know most of the most of the Western media. So. Uh, sometimes I don't know if it's uh, parody anymore. <laughs> satire anymore. right now the whole U.S. is is a fucking satire, and <laughs> I don't have to I don't have to try very hard on the Daily Mail. You don't. You can just post, post straight news, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I just post straight news. You know, today I'm just I'm just posting screenshots from like from the from the COVID COVID tracker website, and that's that's all I have to do. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. Well, um, yeah, I, I, I look forward to have you coming back to because the, the, the text war series is a hit among my listeners and then people really appreciated your inputs. Um, and and I'm, I'm pretty sure we'll like have you back, you know, like to hear more juicy bits from your, you know, inside track. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and thank you again, uh, Mr. T, for coming to the show. So, so my listener, go check out Daily Mao. And, uh, and it is uh, end of uh, October. So I will see you guys in the next administration. <laughs> well, when the result come out. I'll see you guys when the election result come out. <laughs> All right. All right. Good night. See you guys. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Carl. Sure. Take care. Bye-bye. And get get well soon, by the way, on the leg. Oh yes. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye.